Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've been looking forward to today's episode, where we're going to be talking about one of the most complex and difficult emotions that we experience on a regular basis, shame. To help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good and very much looking forward to this topic. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really great one. And before we get into it, I want to do a couple of quick reminders here. First, remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to it on. It really helps us out. And then second, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Then I'd also like to let you know about a new offering from Rick. On August 13 and 14, Rick is going to be offering a live online two-day workshop on grief and loss. He's going to be exploring both what we can do to relate to both ordinary forms of loss and more traumatic forms, and then offering a variety of reparative practices focused on healing from these very painful experiences. If you like the podcast, I think you'll love it, and I've included a link to learn more in the description of today's episode. And if you do decide to register for the course, you can use the code BEINGWELL25 to get 25% off. So everyone listening has probably felt shame at some point, but there are some distinctions here that I found really useful when I was digging into this material. Let's start with how you would describe what shame is. Yes, as we were prepping for this episode, it became clear that the word shame can be stretched to cover a lot of territory And there are some other things that are adjacent to it, such as guilt. So I'm going to start with the biological roots of shame in our primate, hominid, and human heritage in terms of the sort of original evolutionary essence of why did we evolve this emotion? Why is it adaptive to experience intense and emotionally really uncomfortable experiences of shame? What in the world is that about? Research by Paul Gilbert and others have pointed to the ways in which shame evolved rooted in submission behaviors of monkeys and other primates and presumably early humans in which there's the movement physically even that you see in watching chimpanzees interact with each other of a curling over, of a looking away, of kind of getting small and avoiding what could be really aggressive conflict. And it was effective in reducing conflict inside bands and helping betas, if you will, get through tricky situations to the other side and then be able eventually, hopefully, to pass on their own genes. So as you've pointed out to me, the dimension of humiliation is very Mm. close to the primal roots of shame. Yeah. The more elaborate cognitive, conceptual aspects of shame developed further as our hominid and then human ancestors had a brain that tripled in volume over the last several million years. But the roots of it, I think, have to do with an internalized and in very intense sense of, I've done something bad, I am bad. And in it is a, a sense of withdrawal and disengagement from things that could create tension or conflict. It's a message to other people in terms of its functions, not just a very painful experience. Yeah, I think that starting with the survival mechanisms associated with this, 
can be a really interesting way to ground our experience of it because shame is such a painful emotional experience and it's closely tied to a lot of assumptions that we have about the way the world is or the way the world works. And that's the part of shame that I really kind of want to focus on here today. Because it's sort of one thing if you're in a big group of monkeys and you understand that if you mess with the head monkey, you're going to get kicked out of the band and that is going to lead to your death. Okay, really makes sense for shame to have a very useful function inside of that context. But here we are today, and we've still got that same capacity inside of us, and yet we are no longer, by and large, at risk of getting exiled from the band in a way that causes us to risk death, essentially. Now, shame might prevent us from getting exiled from other groups, which is something we're going to talk about a bit today, because we have this architecture inside of our mind of what is appropriate. And that's what shame really connects to a lot, right? The definition of shame that I just grabbed from the dictionary is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. And I think that it's that category of impropriety that's particularly interesting to me, right? That's a very interesting word. There's a lot there. Because somebody needs to decide that something is improper for us to commit and impropriety, right? And I think that a lot of what runs underneath this conversation is going to be a process of uncovering who it is who makes those choices and how it is that we internalize these messages and therefore feel shame when we go against them. Right. Shame is a response to something that has meaning. Well, mm. meanings are constructed yeah, and they're totally. often really nested, as you all know, in culture or the mm -hmm. local culture of a family or a band, that word impropriety could sound right out of a Victorian novel. <laughs> I think it literally is. Like That's, that's kind of what, what strikes me about this whole territory, is how so many of the things that people feel, what later I'll, I'll refer to as unnecessary shame, understandable maybe, but unnecessary yeah. shame, attached to are these moral categories that certainly in Western society find their roots in the Victorian era culture and frankly, a Western religious Christian traditional background and just the Abrahamic religions in general that are suffuse with shame. I mean, the whole idea of born in shame and then delivered by relationship with God is a thing we could unpack here a little bit during this episode. But that's really where we get a lot of those messages from. This is good. So we're already kind of tipping into the so, deep end. All right, anyways, yeah. Right? We've, that's where we've we're going to go. Covered Although a lot I'm of territory here. Are those little water wings so I can float around the deep end somehow in this material? Well, here, I'm thinking about Eric Erickson. Deep, deep thinker, stages of development rooted in psychoanalytic theory. The second stage is shame or autonomy, let's say. Mm -hmm. And what that really has to do with is toilet training. A lot. Mm, yeah. And a lot of Freudian material, again, rooted in Victorian era stuff, often without a lot of indoor plumbing as part of the <laughs> issue there, uh, around learning how to, you know, control yourself and et cetera. And I think Erickson defined shame as the experience we have when that which should be hidden is revealed. So you think mm. about body shame, private parts bodily wastes being revealed, they should be kept out of sight, they should be pushed away. And then you can have a broader societal view, which is again, very Freudian and very cultural mm. to its time, basically civilization contrasted to savagery, the primal, yeah. 
id mm-hmm. and the id should not be revealed you know you yeah. don't want the id in polite company talk about impropriety uh, mm-hmm. no 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 and it's really interesting for people to reflect on whatever might be relevant for you in your early childhood experiences and then you can think about not just physical things that leak out but what about emotions or mm, desires that are somehow supposed to be again Yep. Hidden. Now we're getting the stuff that I like here, Dad. I like yeah, this. Yeah, okay. We're going to get to your <laughs> hidden emotional desires, your lusts. Oh, <laughs> we're going to go in there and maybe. Do a little casual psychoanalysis of me here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's it's what we do, of course. You can always turn it on me. At this point, you're very equipped. To, oh, thank you, Dad. Thank you. I'm Moonlight. I'm Moonlight sans licensure, which is there always a uh, very dangerous spot to be in. Quick little oh, point. Yeah. So here we have this notion of there's like bad stuff, whether it's nasty desires or mm-hmm. whether the bad stuff are thoughts you have. And here's where it gets really interesting because a lot of what we're ashamed of is the bad stuff inside. What happens if a child or let's say an older young person is abused? And then there could be a sense of having been contaminated unjustly by something terrible and unfair that happened to you. And now Mm -hmm. the bad thing is inside you that you are ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And there can be a very short hop from being really mistreated to feeling that somehow you are contaminated in the process. And so you carry the shame of having been, let's say, molested. Well, why would there be any kind of shame in being Mm -hmm. molested as a child? And yet there's a way in which the primitive brain just makes that association. What you're really emphasizing about that is how unfair that emotional experience is for that little kid, right? Yeah. Deeply painful, profoundly unfair, not their fault, and yet this shame arises. And I think that that's something that stands out about shame in general, that it's often a very unfair emotional experience. Sometimes, yes, we are ashamed for things that makes sense. We did a bad thing. We had a thought that was truly unusual and inappropriate in its nature. And maybe even more importantly than just like having a thought, because you don't want to be the thought police to yourself here. We all have thoughts. Thoughts are weird. The subconscious is a strange place. We've talked about that on the podcast a lot. But it's if those thoughts turn into inappropriate actions out in the world, that's when it really starts to make sense to experience some guilt or to experience some shame. And that then takes us to an important distinction here between guilt and shame. And some of this material, for the record, I'm getting from June Tagney, I think is how you say her last name, of George Mason University. She's a professor there. She does a lot of work on guilt and shame. Some of the important distinctions are that guilt, for starters, looks outward. You feel bad for something you did out in the world. Shame, on the other hand, tends to look inwards. People feel bad about themselves. I'm a bad person for having done this. So it's a very self-oriented behavior. There's a lot of selfing in shame. And because of that, there's this sense of worthlessness that can be attached to it. Because when people feel shame about who I am, they want to hide that from other people. So it's extremely isolating, and it can also be a bit calcifying. Guilt, if it's directed appropriately, if we really did do a bad thing and we actually do feel guilty about it, there's this experience attached to it, almost always, of wanting to make it better, right? Mm. Wanting to make amends for what you did. So there's a movement 
that can be associated with guilt. But with shame, there's very little movement. You just are bad, and you're always going to be bad, and that's just the way things are. And you want to disguise that badness or hide it from others. Hmm. So it's both highly isolating, it's very, very painful, and it generally doesn't get us anywhere. Like We don't become a better person, by and large, because we're ashamed about something. Yeah, great summary, Forrest. And I think back on something I said to someone when I was the ripe age of maybe 24, and with the <laughs> infinite wisdom of a 24-year-old. and I'm well acquainted with it, yes. It was partially true. And I basically, she was someone who felt very guilty much of the time. And mm. even around little things, like she was sure. so painfully self-conscious that she might hurt somebody or do something. And I, I said to her, when you feel guilty, someone is lying to you, including yourself. And I think that might be true for most people, maybe 80% of the guilt they experience. There's been a lie that something is an inviolate standard. You must never do X or you must always do mm -hmm. Y. Well, that maybe is true, but often it's not actually true. Or that you ought to feel that you did something that was a moral fault rather than an opportunity for skillful correction. Mm -hmm. Again, a lie. So I just kind of want to put that out there. And I think it's, especially for people who have grown up in a culture of guilt, mm. often with a religious framing around it, or maybe a cultural framing around duties, duties to elders, duties to parents, duties to lineage, that somehow that's part of the package that a person has internalized. Today, mm. there's the opportunity as an adult to step back from all these various beliefs or rules or standards Step back from that and ask yourself, is somebody lying to me here? Am I lying mm -hmm. to myself? Lying is mm -hmm. a strong word. I'm using it partly for effect. But take a fresh look. You really have the right to do that. And then related to what you just brought up earlier, where's the place for healthy remorse? Where's the place for moral sensibility? I mean, is some shame appropriate? Is some guilt appropriate? Is that a question? Was yeah, that, was that a question directed a, at me? It's a layup for you to just sort of go, well, there are different <laughs> categories of guilt and shame, by the way. Good, good segue, Dad. Professional podcasting over here. <laughs> so yeah, okay, so we got these different categories. And I do think that there absolutely are times where it's appropriate to feel remorse for something that we've done. So to separate them out a little bit, just to emphasize again, guilt is about behavior. It's about what you've done. Shame is focused on who you are, and it can be attached to a behavior. But the idea is that your behavior is now saying something about you as a person, and that's where shame comes in. So yeah, I think there are absolutely times where somebody experiences what I'll call understandable guilt or understandable shame. Understandable guilt is when you did a bad thing and you feel bad about it. You're experiencing remorse. You're trying to repair. You want to do better. Great. Understandable shame might be a situation where because you did something that was truly inappropriate, you then have these natural feelings that arise inside of the body connected to what that behavior says about you. And we can go through an understandable process of looking at an assault to our, our moral identity in that way and try to reconcile it inside of a broader framework, not by making excuses about it, but just by understanding its context, who we were at the time, the ways in which the world was pushing on us, our pursuit of better in the future, and what that says about us morally, maybe. All of that can be kind of more integrated into it. 
So that's one big category, right? We've got those understandable guilt, understandable shame. And then we have the more unnecessary forms. When you did something really pretty normal, but you feel guilty about it for some reason, or because somebody else, as you were saying, that is making you feel guilty about it. And then we've got this category of unnecessary shame, which is where we have probably pretty appropriate and understandable urges or impulses, feelings, desires, whatever. They bubble up in the mind, but for some reason, we feel a lot of shame attached to it. And the shame then prevents us from expressing that desire or acting on that impulse. And that's the category that I personally find really, really interesting. Because that's the category that's most prominently attached, I think, at least, to all of that stuff that we were talking about in the introduction. Say more. Can you give a concrete example? Uh, yeah. So let's say, classically, people feel a lot of shame about their sexual urges and desires. So let's say that you're somebody who is eight, nine years old, kind of early developmental world of the body starting to kind of do some stuff, and you're playing with a friend, and things just kind of escalate a little bit. You kind of feel a vibe, maybe you hug a little bit too long. Hey, maybe you kiss your friend, or maybe your friend kisses you or something. And a parent sees it. They see mm. this happen. And then later, you walk on in, the friend has gone home, and the parent says, wow, little Timmy, wow, little Samantha, wow, little Benji, that was not something you should have done. Don't do that. You're not supposed to do that with people right now. Mm. Whatever the explanation is, the communication is you're not supposed to do that. Whoa, like, apply the brakes. And not only are you not supposed to do that, but what you are doing goes against our underlying beliefs about the way that people should be in mm. the world. What you did was kind of immoral by doing that. You know, wow, you should feel bad about that. That's an experience that a lot of people have, right? Very, very common experience. Mm. Early on, you get bumpy with physicality into another person, and wham, the world comes down on you hard. What do we do with that? Let's say, in addition, that you were raised inside of like a relatively... I think it's appropriate to attach this to some more conservative environments or more religious environments, where in addition to that, there's a lot of loading on abstinence. And you're not supposed to have sex. You're not supposed to be physical with other people. Like It is immoral to do that outside of the context of love and relationship. Okay, so now you're 18, 17, 16. Your body is a raging bag of hormones. You're having all of these urges directed in every single direction. What do you feel? You feel profound shame attached to it. This is the story of like Western culture these days, the wrestling with these natural and understandable underlying urges and impulses versus the stories that we tell about them that evoke profound shame for people. And that's a category that I would refer to as like largely unnecessary shame because it's shame that's driven by our schemas. It's not being driven by any kind of objective sense, by and large, of appropriateness or morality. There's so much in this topic. It's hard to imagine a human being having an experience of shame, guilt, remorse, or inadequacy that did not have some kind of cognitive element of standards, rules, shoulds. If there weren't shoulds around, like when I think about a hawk, the hog does what it the hawk does what it does, or a hog does what it does, <laughs> neither of them feels shame. About anything, yeah. yep. including being pretty jerky to their other fellow hawks or the- They're not feeling bad for the rabbit. Yeah, they're not feeling bad for the rabbit. The hog's doing his thing, rolling in the dirt, its own poop, just like whatever. It's a good day at the farm. Chilling. Yeah. Chilling. 
And so as human <laughs> beings who add yeah. these shoulds, right? And so it's really important to track our shoulds and to also be aware of the short hop based on our biology between experiences of contamination and a sense mm. of personal shame and also a sense of humiliation, subordination, and personal shame that kind of goes really fast even before there's some shoulds involved. It just kind of gets you really quickly. It's really important to yeah. pay attention to that. But the rest of it, I think, really has to do with really establishing your own integrity system, often different from your culture's integrity system or your family's integrity system or your religion's integrity system. What's your integrity system? What's your moral basis? Yeah. And one of the great ways to process shame, actually, is to be open to the experience of appropriate remorse related to a violation of your own integrity system that was not mere unskillfulness or you just were clueless, you didn't know, but there was something there. And the willingness to feel appropriate remorse and to let it pass through you actually helps you really stand in the light mm -hmm. and stand mm -hmm. in solid ground where you just go, no, no, you think I ought to be ashamed of myself. No, no. I think I did a perfectly reasonable, fine thing. Or, yeah, mm -hmm. I was a little unskillful, but no, <laughs> I'm not ashamed of myself. And that's a real interesting thing to say to people who want you yeah. to feel guilty or remorseful or ashamed. Like, actually, I don't. I really don't. And it's not because <laughs> I'm a sociopath. It's because yeah. I just don't buy into the belief system that you're trying to presume is somehow mandated from on high or self-evident and so forth. No, no, sorry. Yeah. I'm not taking that one on. And meanwhile, I'm going to keep my head high and, and walk the higher road according to my own integrity system and not be kind of bullied by your shaming and guilt tripping. Yeah. And where this takes me to is who decides what being good looks like? Yeah. Who decides what high achievement looks like? Who decides what moral behavior looks like? And if yeah. we did a, a kind of a, a word cloud like you were doing a second ago, attached to shame, we'd pull up some of those words and we'd pull up other words like defective yeah. or impure or disgusting, things like that. And yeah, maybe yeah. we have some kind of vision in our heads of what those things look like and contrasting with them what moral behavior looks like. And it can be really freeing to have a moment where you fully recognize that that is coming from somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I can think of some behaviors that I personally believe are inherently immoral. But, you know, again, that's attached to my own cosmology. And I'm not just trying to be like a pure moral relativist here, but I do think that with these big systemic things that people often feel shame about, including their understandable impulses and urges, we really need to house them in this broader understanding and context of the fact that we are internalizing messages about what appropriate and inappropriately looks like. And those messages are by and large coming from authority figures mm. of different kinds. And so our early models of morality are going to be almost entirely driven by our early relationships. And then I think there's this really cool opportunity, and it's the opportunity you were saying, Dad, where we can go back in as an adult and say, okay, what is the shame that I am experiencing teaching me about what I was taught as a kid? And how can I now go back in as an adult and say, okay, I want this and I want to get rid of that. And now I'm making agent choices about my shame and my morality as opposed to being just a fly on the wall that happened to be absorbing this stuff. 
you're making me think about disgust. So when I yeah, think about these sure. classic so-called seven sort of primal emotions, there's controversy around that and whether they all read in the facial expressions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, you think of these major primary emotions, disgust is one of them. And disgust, in terms of its neural basis, is very close to rage in its neural basis deep in the brainstem. By close to, I mean in terms of evolutionary time. So disgust, mm. arguably, was the very first emotion that the ancient lizards and fish developed because it's so useful for spitting things out. Don't eat this. It's disgusting. Get away from it. So think about it. We feel that others are disgusting. Others should be ashamed of themselves. And we need to be careful about how we think about other people in terms of what we're exploring here. Like they ought to be guilty. They ought to have remorse. They're doing bad things. They're bad. They're wrong. I'm morally superior to them because I don't do that bad stuff. You know, this material that we're exploring here is a two-way street. The lens can be turned inward to reflect on your own shame psychology. And we can be very reflective about our moral judgments about other people which are a very slippery slope. Mm. And as a factor mm -hmm. of that, if we're disgusted by stuff they do, we think, oh, that's disgusting. Then if we do it, if we do it, it's kind of a short hop to move from disgust to shame. It's a short hop from that's disgusting to I'm disgusting, and a short hop from I'm disgusting to I should be ashamed of myself. And then you ask yourself, is it really that disgusting? I mean, since I guess we're going there, so this is exactly where I want to go. And, and to do that, I want to draw a quick distinction here. Because really, we're talking about two categories. We're talking about shame, group A, because I have transgressed my own values, essentially. I believe that I've done something wrong, therefore I feel like a bad person because it was against my cosmology. Category two, I have transgressed the broader group's values. That second category, I'm very skeptical of. The first category, I think, is kind of interesting. And I think that it's that second category where all of the power shows up. Hmm. And we start seeing a lot of the inherent power inside of groups. Yeah, And we can start asking ourselves some useful questions about where that power comes from and who is served by it. Yeah, you could think about trying to get people to internalize. I mean, there, there, there are healthy things about this, to get children to internalize reasonable societal standards. We stop at red lights. That's an important thing. We, we try to take care of the youngest among us, and we try to be kind. You know, there's a place for that internalization. But just like you say, what happens when it goes too far or that internalization is like those rules, those voices are there, but deep in your innermost being, you're alienated from it. And that's an issue as well. And it's a freeing. It's freedom. It's freeing to take a little time to sort out what is your actual integrity system, distinct from what everybody's been telling you or somehow the rules you internalized growing up. And are you living true to that system? On any given day, do you have a clean conscience? And again, I'm stressing the conscience that's your own internal, soul-centered, being-centered conscience not just the shoulds, the superego shoulds, in effect, that have been installed in you. Yeah, I guess my experience is that a lot of the time people feel intense shame connected to things that they don't necessarily experience as a breach of their personal integrity. 
So the guy who is acculturated to not cry, essentially. So the urge to cry arises inside of the body, shame comes in, cuts off the crying, the emotion is suppressed. We know how that story ends, generally not very well. Maybe things with identity. Like, I think that a lot of, a big form of shame that we haven't even named yet is identity-related shame. People who belong to marginalized groups that society has attached a variety of labels to, saying, essentially, this group bad, you part a group, you bad. You know, that's identity shame. And so we're carrying around these packages of views, right? And, and interestingly, in all of that, there's not, maybe there's an aspect of morality, but a lot of it is not about morality. It's about power and control, again and again. And we turn it into a morality play because morality is a wonderful lever that we can apply to people to curtail their behavior. Hmm. That's the mechanism. That's the fulcrum. You mean morality in the service of power? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so the bedrock principle that we're totally agreeing on is this notion of what I'm calling your kind of core integrity system. Yeah. That you feel autonomous. In relationship to, it's very important. You're not being ordered around inside yourself. Yeah. You buy into it. Mm -hmm. And at a visceral level, it feels right to you. Mm -hmm. And then if we step back and take a look at society, first, we have so many examples of people who set themselves up as moral authorities, promulgating a lot of morality, who when you discover their secret life, is really nasty in all kinds of ways, or they talk a good talk, but the actual consequences of their votes or their policies mm. are extremely harmful to all kinds of people. And then there's the dimension, and here's where, you know, you're going to womp on me probably, but I think a lot of people just day-to-day kind of mess up, and they're, they're sloppy, they're lazy, they're irresponsible, they don't really, they don't give a darn about their impact on other people. I think the distinction here is we got to be careful about laying my standards on other people. Yeah, for sure. Whoever me is. Okay, we got to be careful mm -hmm. about that. A lot of pitfalls. And we're also really being careful about internalized standards that are not really wise and finding your own truth about what your own genuine morality is. I think a lot of people have not taken the time to locate their own personal morality, their own mm -hmm. core mm -hmm. integrity system. I just want to say there's a balance. On the one hand, we don't want to be excessively guilt-ridden by the internalization of societal standards that are driven at bottom by power structures, let's say, that are not really on our side. On the one hand. On the other hand, hey, there's a place for really having a heart-to-heart -heart with yourself <laughs> about your own sure. standards. Yeah, right? of course. And your own impact yeah. on other people and some thoughtfulness about that. We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. 
Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash beingwell and use code 25beingwell to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell, code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, L-I-F-T, desk.com slash beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet. And IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64,000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text being well to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well.
Okay, so we've given a lot of context here, and I would like to talk a little bit more about what people can do about all of this, in addition to what we've already said. And there are these different categories. We've named a bunch of them. And I think that maybe particularly with shame, we can think in terms of these two different big categories. And the first one are situations, really, where somebody should up their game out in the world. They did something problematic. They're not behaving up to their own standards. They could adopt maybe a higher set of standards, and that if they went about fulfilling those, they would feel better about themselves. And this would legitimately cause a person, plausibly, to experience less shame over time. And then there's a second category, which are the experiences that really I kind of orient towards, and I'm, I guess, a bit more interested in just personally, which is that category of more unnecessary forms of shame. This could be shame tied to somebody's identity, feeling ashamed because of, say, their sexual orientation. It could be shame that's attached to a belief about their own nature and what that nature means for their category of person. For instance, just to use a classic example here, a guy who feels like an emotional introvert. And they feel a lot of shame attached to that because we have these social stories that men are supposed to be strong and powerful and extroverted and masculine and so on. And maybe even then we can look at a subcategory inside of that of the stories that we internalized when we were young. And we find ourselves now in adulthood not aligning with those stories, not being that kind of person. And that can evoke for somebody a really, really strong sense of shame. So we have these different categories, and now I'd love to just kind of toss it to you here. Are there things that you've found help people in working with these experiences of shame when they come up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I've used all the tricks myself because I needed to. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to be a little loose about the ways in which shame is a territory. It's like an amoeba with tentacles into remorse, guilt, self-criticism, self-punishment, yeah, and feelings sure. of inadequacy, being less than others of the mess. One is to certainly be mindful of it altogether. Shame is so primal and powerful. Like I said, neurobiologically, evolutionarily, pretty close to disgust in a lot of the interaction there. And it can just grab you. You hardly mm -hmm. even realize it. Suddenly you start feeling bad about yourself and guilty. Mm -hmm. Just, what was that? So mindfulness of it and unpacking. To slow it down, what are the body sensations of shame? With the feeling almost a nausea or like you've been punched in the gut, you want to curl over maybe, just whatever's true for you about that. And then certainly the cognitions, that's a big one that we've really emphasized here. What are the shoulds, the, the rules, mm -hmm. the standards, the laws, the commandments that somehow you've internalized and it's bad to violate, including you are a walking violation, <laughs> let's say, maybe yeah, related to sexual sure. identity of those standards. So try to un really unpack it. Second, shame, is, and a lot of these are socially referenced emotions. Mm -hmm. They evolved in community, and therefore their healing is in community. Mm -hmm. So feeling like you have others that you're connecting with who love you and care about you, see the good in you, you also care about them and you love them, and you're in community altogether. That's a second really big thing. So I've talked about mindfulness and unpacking. Second, I'm emphasizing community and relationships, including special beings who affirm you and see value in you and good in you, not because they're flattering you or working you for some prize they want, but because they genuinely witness in you that which is good and worthy. That's mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. 
Third, and you and I, one of the best chapters, I think, in our book, Resilient, is the last one about generosity, which includes the yeah. generosity of forgiveness and especially self-forgiveness. That material is really, really good because there is a process of self-forgiveness when we are grappling with shame in which we sort, because we've been mindful of it, what, if anything, deserves healthy remorse, appropriate wince of mm, or minimally skillful correction, like I'm going to do differently in the future, okay? Sort that out. Carve it out. Own it. Feel good about yourself, that you're taking care of that, maybe with some yeah. making amends with others or doing the best you can to repair. Sometimes there are things in our life that we can't fix with the person that we wronged back in junior high school. But today, we can go out of our way, let's say, for a middle schooler. And then otherwise, no, hey, I've handled that. I don't really deserve to feel bad about who I am in the other area. The last thing I'll say is that without feeling like you need to do this because you're bad in some way, just because it's true. The more minutes and the more days we spend in which we feel, you know, didn't suck too bad today. You know, actually, I was a decent person today. I showed up, yeah. I did my job, I was honorable, didn't have to be a saint, but I, it was a good enough being day. Accumulating days like that and taking in the good of the sense of that can really, really help over time. Not because you're trying to make up for something that's wrong, because there's nothing wrong, but just grounding in a a knowledge of just your own goodness, your ordinary goodness. It's not like you have to do anything different. Just recognizing on any given day, you're trying hard. You're showing up. You're a decent person. You wish people well. Yeah, I want to focus for a second on the isolation aspect of it that you mentioned for a moment there. And it's that shame is essentially self-disgust, if you want to think about it that That's way, right? That's really we, insightful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, and that disgust could be coming from a bunch of different places. It could be out in the world. It could be because we actually did mm. transgress our own standards. Whatever it is, it's self-disgust. Yeah. And there's this aspect of it that's extremely devaluing, right? Like you were talking about, you're lowering yourself down the social totem pole. Yeah. And we want to often like hide from ourselves. When people experience shame, this is a common thing that they talk about wanting to, to hide from themselves. Yeah. And because of that, it's closely tied to things like substance abuse and self-harm behaviors and so on. And then, of course, in a vicious cycle, these behaviors lead to more shame, which leads to more of the behaviors, right? And when we're ashamed of something, something we did, something we are, something we thought about it, the content is almost inherently unshareable or feels almost inherently unshareable to us because if other people just knew the way that we actually were on the inside, they would fill in the blank. They'd leave me, laugh at me, think I was pathetic, hate me, whatever. And interestingly, maybe because of this, being able to talk about these things with other people, even if it's just by illusion, because the actual content is too intense to really touch or feel mm. can actually be extremely freeing mm. because it's the isolation aspect that's so closely tied to the emotional experience of shame. Mm. So there's something called a shame proneness scale. Different people vary in how shame prone they are. I think I'm somewhat shame prone, but I'm not super duper shame prone. 
I think that she would be okay with me talking about this because she's talked about it pretty publicly too. My partner, Elizabeth, is very shame-prone. Shame is an extremely vibrant emotion for her. Mm. And often she'll need to really do a lot of pretty deep resourcing practices and really get on her own side and really use all of the tools and really rev herself up to have a conversation with me where she shares something that is a very normal request or a very normal feeling about the way a group of people felt to her that maybe she didn't vibe with for whatever reason, but she feels, quote unquote, like a bad person because the environment didn't feel good to her and she knows that other people were having a good time inside of it, for instance, to give a, a simple example. And she'll get very emotional. She'll tear up to just give this very normal expression of like, Forrest, I didn't have a great time in this social environment. Like it's not, it's not a high leverage communication, right? It's a very normal communication. And even to get there, she needs to really build herself up. But almost always, if she's able to do that and she can express it to me, and then I validate it, I go, oh yeah, makes sense. I understand how you felt that way. Like seems normal to me. It is so relieving of that shame experience, right? Because you've had somebody else view the small self the self that's getting beaten down by all of these powerful shaming impulses internally, and validate and support the small self, raising it up to be able to match that intense voice of self-criticism that is often associated with shame. And so I think that that aspect of it, if you're able to get it from a friend, from a partner, from a family member, from following different people on Twitter, you know, if we're talking about social stuff, whatever, then that can be remarkably reparative for people. I am so glad you brought this up, Forrest, really. And it inverts the Eric Erickson thing that we talked about. In other words, it doesn't need to be hidden. Yeah. Right? You know, Erickson's comment that, right, shame is that which should be hidden is revealed. I like and that. Yeah. Like, no, actually, everybody has poop. <laughs> For example. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, God, Dad, right? Does corn suffer? Everybody poops. These are we're, we got to release like a series of mugs or coasters or something with with Rick Hansen one liners on them. No. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, we could do a episode. We really probably ought to at some point about sex. But yeah, as a therapist, one thing I've learned is that sort of the normal range of food preferences. Let's just start there. Is pretty wide. The normal range of sexual preferences is. 10 times wider. Mega wide. Mega wider. Yeah, for sure. Just because, particularly when you really burrow into or just reveal just the inner workings of people's minds, the thoughts they have as they're walking down the street, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And maybe in some ways, this episode in part is speaking about honoring the primal. Like, yeah. For real. Yeah. They did. The basement, the savage stuff, or I don't even want to call it that because that's pejorative, just original mm -hmm. nature. It's okay. We all have it. Sometimes you got to regulate it, you know, flush the toilet. It's okay. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not that it was bad. There's yeah. nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. And I think that really attached to that, maybe to be the final thing that we do during this episode, because we've certainly covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. One of the practices that's been extremely useful for me personally mm -hmm. is this idea of working with your shame story. Mm. And 
And I think that what happens is that we develop a story about ourselves, about other people, about the world. And we interpret so much through the lens of that story. Yeah. So attached to that, we can do this process of kind of reverse engineering where it came from, so we can mm -hmm. then make a more active choice in the here and now about whether or not we want to hold on to it. So here are some questions that have been kind of useful for me. And the first is, what are the big themes mm. in your shame story? What are the categories of thing that activate a really strong feeling of shame for you? Are they, as we've said a few times during the conversation, are they sexual in nature? Are they relational? Are they about your identity? What's the category that we're dealing with here? Are they about what you're actually doing out in the world and, and you do feel like you're not doing as well as you could be? Great, yeah, what's the category? Then, when did that association start? When did shame start getting attached to that other thing, that idea, that category, that way that you are? Did that happen pretty early on? Is it a more recent development? What was going on in your life when that attachment happened? And then closely tied to that, who were the powerful figures in your life when this attachment was happening? Maybe particularly, who are the powerful figures in your life when you were really young and extremely impressionable about these things? And what did they think about those impulses you had or behaviors or the way you were? What were the stories that they told you about mm. what it meant to be that kind of a way? And then finally, here and now, what are some of the assumptions that you're making about these things? What are the assumptions that you've internalized about what it means to be a whatever it is that you are? or to act in the way that you naturally act. Because I've really noticed in myself, as I've gone through this process, closely associated with you, Dad, of really investigating my own material, I was carrying around so many assumptions that I didn't even realize I was carrying around about the way I was, the way the world worked, the way other people were, what was appropriate, what was inappropriate. I was just assuming all the time. And it was only by really deliberately going back in and investigating those assumptions that some real growth and change happened for me. And that's what I think really maybe the single most powerful part of my own development process has been oriented around, which is investigating those assumptions and then deciding which of them I actually align with versus the ones that I was just carrying around well past their expiration date. What you're talking about in a way is the formation of a person. And I think about the Carl yeah. Rogers book, and one of the things we really want to do is go back through yeah. history of psychology, a dozen major figures, and just sort of do an episode on each one of them. One of them I really hope we do is Carl Rogers. One of his seminal books is titled On Becoming a Person. So here yeah. we are becoming a person. The shame topic opens up into the whole notion of internalization mm -hmm. and who you become. And are you integrated or fragmented? Are you more like an archipelago <laughs> or a unified continent in terms of your self-structure? And what do you do with these islands, as it were, that have been, you just took in, you drank them, you internalized them with mother's milk, you know, when you were a year old. Don't want that. Don't say that. Don't go there. Don't see that. That's a whole category, by the way, as well, that people can, in a weird way, feel guilty or ashamed for recognizing certain things that are true. Oh, for sure. Yeah, if they're being gaslit in their family or, or in their culture. And we're really talking here about what's a person's relationship, what's your relationship 
What's my relationship with things that I still feel, I know I'm disproportionately upset about them, still out of proportion to what actually happened given the full complexity. That's another thing, by the way, about shame. It's being able to see the larger systems you were part of and the larger influences. You ended up, let's say, parenting in that way because that's what you learned right? Or there were other pressures that your kids appropriately didn't know about, but were really impacting your capacities of different ways, you know, to to really take it into account. And so a little bit with shame, it's this wonderful, powerful journey to who am I? Who have I been? Who was I told I ought to be? And who do I decide I am and ought to be? I think that's really lovely, Dad, and totally co-sign all of it. And I want to just offer one final little thing, because you you mentioned it a second ago, and it's making me think about it, about shame in relationship to group belonging. Because you began the conversation by talking about shame as the exile emotion. Shame is the emotion that prevents, in particular, exile from the group. When people are beginning to go through a major process of internal change, it almost always brings them into intense conflict with the groups that they are a part of because all groups seek to preserve their homeostasis. Mm -hmm. They want to stay the same. And this can happen in ways large and small. It can certainly happen for people who change some major aspect of identity, but it can also just happen in much smaller ways through the course of their life as they move along and they decide that this friend group isn't the friend group for them anymore, or this job isn't the job for them anymore. You know, whatever it is, these natural processes of change. Yeah. Almost always associated with that, people go through a shame process, in my experience. Mm. Sometimes people are able to get through it shame-free, often because the circumstances are just so obvious in terms of like them being abusive or problematic or whatever that it's like, oh yeah, I really got to get out of there. But outside of that, a lot of shame can come up around leaving a friend group that doesn't work for you anymore, a religion that doesn't work for you anymore, a family structure that doesn't work for you anymore. Mm. And Processing that is a part of this too. And I just want to name that as a way in which shame can get into that. And it's a natural response. And then so what helps me sometimes is for starters, realizing that it's just a natural response, something your body's trying to do to keep you in relationship. And then again, returning to some of those practices that you were naming, Dad, around exploring the nature of values, where are these values coming from? Which do I want to align with? Which do I want to leave behind? Uh, looking at the nature of identity and who's telling the stories about what different identities mean can be a very powerful way to investigate some of this stuff. And then sharing. Can you find Mm. other forms of social support outside of the group that you are currently a part of or the group that you are making an exit from? Well, I think that we talked about a lot today. (laughs) Way too much. (laughs) Covered a lot of ground. And I had a great time talking today with my dad about shame and how shame comes up for people and what we can do about it. We begin this episode by defining shame and drawing some useful distinctions between different kinds of shame and between shame and similar emotions like guilt. We typically feel ashamed because we feel like we have fallen short in some way, either like we've fallen short of our own standards or perhaps the standards that were given to us by other people, or maybe that we've acted against our values in some way. And we did a kind of word cloud for shame throughout the episode, and this included words like disgust or humiliation. 
The definition of shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. And it was mostly that category of impropriety that we really focused on, because that's a really interesting word. After all, somebody needs to decide that something is improper. And then we can ask ourselves, naturally, where does our view of that improperness come from? Who's giving it to us? And are we actually benefited by it? Because there are absolutely situations, and Rick talked about this a bit during the episode, where it's understandable for somebody to feel ashamed based on something that they did, or at the very least for something that they feel guilty about to turn into understandable shame. And it's really important for us to distinguish between these categories, because sure, there are some situations where, okay, it makes sense for us to feel a little shame about something that happened, but often we feel a lot of unnecessary shame when our wants and needs are totally understandable, where we acted in a perfectly normative kind of way, or at least one that really shouldn't be a problem if you think about it a little bit. And yet we have these systems that are imposing on our behavior in a variety of different ways and telling us the things that we should or shouldn't be doing. And it was those shoulds and shouldn'ts that we really spent a lot of time during this episode talking about. We then distinguished between guilt and shame. Guilt looks outward. You feel bad for some specific behavior you did. Shame looks inward. We feel bad because of our nature. I'm a bad person for having done this thing. And because of that, it's kind of a selfish emotion. Guilt really centers the person or persons who were harmed by what we did, whereas shame is very much focused on us, on our own nature. The outward focus that guilt has, which can include uh, claiming of responsibility, making good amends, things like that, can actually help us sometimes move into more positive situations or change things in a good way. But shame very rarely does that because it is such a personal and almost private emotional experience. We never want to share our shame with other people, almost by definition. So what happens? Well, we isolate ourselves in our shame, or maybe we take up behaviors that cause us to feel a little bit less shame in the moment or allow us to avoid or numb ourselves or escape our shame then problematically, a lot of those behaviors tend to lead to more shame in the long run. So you can enter a shame spiral, where one thing leads to another leads to another, and all of a sudden, you're carrying around this pile of toxic shame. Because toxic shame is shame that sticks around after the thought has gone away, after we've made amends for any actual problematic behavior, after the situation has changed, and so on. And because shame is a form of negative self-evaluation, it's often closely tied to extremely harsh self-criticism. Then there's another category of shame called identity shame, which we talked about a little bit during the episode, and this is shame attached to who we are. It could be based on belonging to a marginalized or stigmatized category of people, our, our gender identity, our racial identity, our sexual identity, and so on. It could be attached to early experiences that a person has. Rick talked for a little while about the ways in which traumatic experiences that people have can get kind of stuck to how they think about themselves, even though they clearly did absolutely nothing wrong. Something wrong was done to them, and yet it becomes almost attached to the self-identity. So we had all those different categories of shame or guilt, and then we spent most of our time focusing on what you might think of as the unnecessary forms of shame. You didn't actually do a bad thing. 
thought you had really wasn't that unreasonable, it was perfectly normal range, whatever it is, and yet you feel a lot of shame for it anyways. And in order to feel shame, we need to feel like we've transgressed in some way, like we've been bad, we've fallen short, we're deeply flawed, and so on. And this leads us naturally to a really big question. Who decides what being good looks like? Who decides what's defined as being a high achiever, being successful? Who decides what's moral? Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's not. There are things that I think objectively are pretty moral, and there are objectively things that I think are probably not very moral, but there is a certain degree of relativism here. And one of the things that's really important to do in this process is to take a look at the stories that we're carrying around about what constitutes appropriate and inappropriate behavior, or an appropriate or inappropriate desire or want for yourself or way of being out in the world, and who is benefited by you carrying around a certain kind of story. We internalize these messages starting at an extremely young age, and they typically come from authority figures of different kinds. Our parents, our teachers, society as a whole. And so we can see how there is a close tie between shame and power, particularly with these unnecessary forms of shame, because we often experience shame when we feel like we are in defiance of something. Rick began the whole conversation by talking about the evolutionary purpose of shame, how it kept people in line inside of these small bands that are moving around the world at a moment in time where exile from that band was effectively a death sentence. Shame is essentially an emotion that puts a pressure on you to conform. So whenever you're not, well, it's natural that shame would be activated. And so we can go through a deliberate process now as adults, looking back on our shame story, asking ourselves questions like, what are the big themes and what causes us to feel shame? When did the attachment of shame to those themes begin? Who were the powerful figures who told you stories about those themes and about shame as a whole? And what are the assumptions that you're still making today about the way that the world is, the way that you need to be? And then we can go through a deliberate process and we can make active choices. You can look at something and go, yeah, that actually is my moral code. And you know what? I actually have kind of fallen short of it. And man, it would probably be appropriate for me to change my behavior in some way. Or you can say, screw that, that's not me, that was given to me by somebody else, and I am carrying around this message that I do not want to be in alignment with. And yes, that's going to create some bumpiness, it's going to put pressure on my friend group, it's going to maybe cause me to seek out a different, more supportive group of people. But whatever it is, I don't want to carry that story around anymore, and I don't want to feel ashamed for that thought that I'm having, that aspect of my nature, and so on. And one of the things that Rick and I emphasized in the conversation several times was the importance here of community, of being in relationship with people that you feel comfortable telling a little bit, just enough, of that shame story to. So it's kind of like gently cracking the lid on a soda that's been shaken one too many times, and you can let a little bit of that fizz out of the bottle. Because shame is such an isolating emotion. It causes us to withdraw inside of ourselves. We feel like these are the darkest aspects of our person, and we just can't share them with anybody else. And it's striking that so much of the repair then comes through relationship. Maybe you can just tell it to a therapist. Maybe you can just tell it to your closest friend. But if you can share it with someone, there's often a lot of relief in that. That's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it. And hey, maybe even tell a friend about it. 
It's probably the best way we have to reach new people. Also, you can leave a rating and a positive review. And hey, might as well find us on Patreon too. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can receive a bunch of bonuses, things like expanded show notes, transcripts, and ad-free versions of the episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.